We have come to the part in the book of Daniel um, that a lot of churches probably don't talk about much. Um, I remember hearing a uh, layman prepare to give a message to a fairly large church, and his text was Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, and Jesus speaking out to Lazarus, who was dead, to come forth, and, and the uh, guest speaker said, if you want, ever want to know what it's like to speak to the dead, ask your pastor. And so oftentimes, a lot of times in our congregations, there are people who are just, they may be there physically, but, but that's about it. Today, I'm not as concerned about you being dead, because Jesus does resurrect the dead, but I'm, I'm concerned, and so I'm going to ask you, whether you're in the pew or watching us in, on some of the social media platforms, to give me a few minutes before you tune me out. Because what I'm going to talk about is one of those things that a lot of churches don't talk about anymore, because so many people tune them out. And that's sin. Now, I never like to use a particular sin, because if I do, you either think I'm the one committing it, or I'm talking about you. And so my analogy about sin has always been chocolate and broccoli. I love chocolate. Chocolate's always a temptation, whether it comes like a Reese's peanut butter cup, or Hershey's, or M&M's, or whatever it is, Kit Kat. Whatever the form of chocolate is, I like it. And it's a great temptation to me. So I always use chocolate as an analogy for sin, so that I don't have to talk about real ones. And the other one is broccoli. Some of you, and I have no idea why, some of you like broccoli. And you're, you don't have a sweet tooth, and so broccoli is your temptation. Well, broccoli's not mine. And, and oftentimes I'll go, well, why would, that, why would you fall for that sin, that broccoli, because I'm not interested. And so in our churches today, because people don't like to talk about sin, we talk about mistakes or other things that kind of just uh, misjudgments. However, rather than using broccoli or chocolate, I want you to think on your, of your own. What sin is it that in your life that, that you have find difficulty dealing with or some sin that you think that God has already forgiven you and, and whatever. I want you to kind of think about that. Now, what is sin? Some, the th kind of the theological answer is it's missing the mark. It's not going to where you're supposed to be. Some people will say it's those actions that you do that harms other people or yourselves. So I'm not, I'm not all that worried about a theological what is it that makes you feel bad about what your actions or your attitudes are? Thought about those things? Now, I'm sure a lot of us, we kind of tend to think that God hates those things because we've heard God hates sin but loves the sinner. And so uh, we always think about, well, God hates kind of these gross sins and these terrible things or whatever it is that I do and that, uh, somehow I'm not worthy of forgiveness and those types of things. Now I bet, as you race through some of those things about 
the various sins that you're struggling with or have struggled with, that we're going to talk about something, a sin that God hates. And I bet it didn't come across your mind at all. So we're going to start not by going through the narrative in Daniel, but we're going to start in Proverbs because a very wise man inspired by the Word of God named Solomon said this in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in, the sp- in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So God, through the wisdom, is saying, when you have pride, if you find yourself prideful, that that will lead you to a destruction. And it is better not to be there and with those people, but better to be humble and humble in spirit with others. Another passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this, There are six things which the Lord hates. Pretty strong words. There are six things that, which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. Now that haughty is kind of an arrogant superiority that you have looking down on those who are inferior to you. So God, in essence, hates pride. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that runs rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. I suspect in all that list, that didn't come across your mind. And yet, it seems that these types of things are not only not approved of by God, but God hates. They're considered an abomination. So now, let's take a look at the passages in Daniel. So we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 4. And as we concluded in chapter 3, that Nebuchadnezzar, because no one worshipped, the three young men did not worship at his statue, that he threw them into a burning fire, and God was able to sustain them and to deliver them. And following from that, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now when you stop there, you would almost think that Paul wrote this. It seems good to me that grace and peace may abound to you. This is kind of a, a prologue of the story that... Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell of what happened to him. But he started on saying, I'm going to write you these things. I want your peace to abound. But I'm writing this as what God has done for me. It says, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So he starts off his prologue by announcing how awesome God is and that God's kingdom is is an everlasting kingdom. Which again, going through the theme of Daniel, is that God is sovereign, that His kingdom will be established and will last forever, and that currently we are 
aliens, sojourners in a foreign land. We're living in this land, but it doesn't recognize God's kingdom. So then after this prologue, Nebuchadnezzar writes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make known its interpretation to me. So this is the second dream that Daniel has talked about that Nebuchadnezzar had. So far, both times that the king has asked his wise people to interpret a dream, they failed. The first time he said, I want you to tell me what the dream is, then the interpretation. This time he's going to tell them what the dream is, but he wants to know the interpretation. Now I suspect that they don't know the interpretation because it says they don't know it. But I also suspect that even if they figured it out, it's, it's kind of the old expression, don't kill the messenger. This is not going to be a really good interpretation, and so the king may not want to hear it. And so sometimes the better part of valor is just remain silent. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, <coughs> and in whom a spirit of the holy gods and I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, <coughs> excuse me. No mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. <coughs> excuse me. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay upon my bed. Behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. And the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Now I want you to see that this dream kind of shifts. It talks about a tree, and then it kind of talks about a person. So there's this shift. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
the last few verses kind of, to me, kind of gives the reason and the interpretation. So it doesn't take somebody who's really skilled to kind of see this dream because we see what the purpose is. But Daniel is asked to give its interpretation. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is on you. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar knows exactly what Daniel can do, because he's seen it do it. And he gives him praise in the sense of going, I understand it's not coming from you, but he misunderstands completely who it's coming from, because he still keeps thinking as one who worships numerous gods. The holy gods give this to you. And Daniel has made it very clear that it's the God of heaven that reveals mysteries to him. So Nebuchadnezzar hasn't got it quite right. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel knows what's going on. And he's, as this appalls, he's concerned about it. And I'm sure in those moments he's trying to figure out how to communicate this to the king. And the king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now I find this response remarkable. Why do I find it remarkable? Because Daniel is living in Babylon. That's not his own place. Jerusalem is his home. He's serving a foreign king who had not too long ago thrown his friends into a fiery furnace. I know what our attitude would be. I'm glad it's happening. Here's the, here's the interpretation, and I can't think of a more deserving person to hear it. But that's not Daniel's response. Daniel's response is, I wish it belonged to somebody else. I wish it was to your adversaries. Notice the loyalty that Daniel gives to the king that he serves. Because Daniel understands that he serves the king because it's at the pleasure of God that he do so. And all too often, we are kind of like those uh, armchair warriors who we will see somebody, uh, a terrorist or somebody doing evil things, and in, in our kind of attitude is, Lord, I'd love to send them to your presence and let me the, be the instrument of that person. Daniel's attitude is, uh-oh, this isn't good. We should never have the attitude as believers that those who God is going to judge is a good thing. So then he gives them the interpretation. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, 
whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in those whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the earth, to the end of the earth. So Daniel points to him and says, that's right, it, the tree represents you, your power, those who seek to receive abundance and blessing and protection come to you. That tree is you. But because the tree is you, in that you saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from the heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new, in the new grass of the field, and let him drench with the dew of the heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon you, my Lord, the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling be placed with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And it, in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize it is heaven that rules. So Daniel gives him the interpretation further and says, what's going to happen is you're going to lose your kingdom, but God is not going to rip it out entirely. He's not going to rip it out by the roots. He's going to place, a, in essence, a protection around it. He's going to let it remain so that after you have recognized that you are not in authority because of who you are, but you are in authority because of what God has determined. After you come to that realization, then the kingdom, your kingdom will be restored, but not until you come to that realization. And again, you could say, then you'll say, okay, I've done my job, I'm out of here. You asked me for, for an interpretation of your dream, you told it to me, I gave you the interpretation, you're going to go out and you're going to act kind of like a wild beast, you're going to eat grass, kind of going to be like an ox. So, uh, it's nice knowing you, wouldn't want to be you. But that's not what Daniel does. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. So, he gave him the interpretation, but now he's going to say, I'm going to give you advice. This has nothing to do with the interpretation. I want to give you good advice, and I want you to accept it. I want it to be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel says, if you just get your act together, if you stop being prideful of who you are and start taking your position to help those in need and to show mercy on those, then perhaps God will allow you to continue on in your prosperity and will delay this situation. So in essence, he's kind of trying to give him the gospel. Saying, Here's the good news. God 
will not execute this immediately if you just change. But unlike the wise, this is what happens. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now, before I read the rest, we live in Southern California, and this is a massive place, and it has massive traffic, and um, we just kind of think that because we live in the 21st century and we have all of the technological advances, that somehow we're superior and whatever. And that back then, way back then, you had a few village people and they were lucky to be around. Babylon was a city of probably about two million people. It had walls that were so large that you could drive two cars in opposite directions on them. They were so high, they were about probably 70 feet high. Then they had guard towers at every, it was about 100 feet high. This was a massive city, massively protected. It was beautiful. As a matter of fact, two of the seven wonders were, were there in Babylon. One was the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife to kind of show her her homeland. So he built it for her, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. There was also a ziggurat, kind of like a, a pyramid, that was also built there. It was also considered one of the seven wonders. So their technology and their building was supreme. And, it, and if you will, it was a beautifully large city. It wasn't just a small town. So he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? He doesn't think little of himself. He thinks, I did all of this. And I did all of this because I'm so wonderful. Now, before we jump on him too much, isn't that what we kind of think about who, who God did for us? I'm so wonderful that God did all of this for me and for my majesty and to make my life wonderful, to make my life beautiful. Rather than understanding, it's not about you. It's about God. So maybe we have more in common with Nebuchadnezzar even though we don't rule a vast kingdom. And while the word was in the king's mouth, God's right there. While the word was still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So God 
executes judgment. I warned you in a dream this is what was going to happen. You persisted in your pride and therefore you have been judged. But notice in the judgment there is a way of escape. Once you recognize that it's not about you, that it's not your city, it's not your kingdom, but God gave it to you, once you recognize who's really in control, then it'll be returned to you. So in the judgment, there is hope. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Basically, he was probably a really hairy guy. And being a hairy guy, out in the elements, his hair kind of became matted and all tangled up, so he kind of looked more like an animal than a human. And his fingernails were so long and whatever that they more looked like talons of a bird. So he kind of adopted almost the visual of an animal. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and that no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He becomes understanding that God, as we sang, is in control. That it is God who is sovereign and that he gives to whomever he desires kingdom. Notice he thought irrationally and now he thinks rationally. Now, I don't want to get all too positive and say, oh, this means that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. Because the Scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Most of those people who are now in bending are not doing so because they do so voluntarily. And so even though someone may praise God, doesn't mean they know Him. So once he acknowledges who he is, verse 36 says this, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me, for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and the surpassing greatness was added to me. So Nebuchadnezzar says something that almost seems impossible or improbable because usually when the leader leaves, somebody else wants to take their place and they don't want you coming back. They want to be in control. But in this situation, we see that when Nebuchadnezzar comes to
to his rational thought and understands that it is God who's given him, God gives him back his kingdom. And the counselors who would be there, who would be trying to keep it from themselves, are pursuing him and saying, take back your throne. So that we see, and not only is he restored, but he's restored to even more than he had in the beginning. Which when God comes and presents a judgment to us and says, if you don't stop this, this is going to happen. But he always gives you an opportunity to escape. And it will always restore you to that which was and better. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. Now he's kind of getting it. It's not the holy ones. It's not the holy gods. It's the King of Heaven that gives these things. For all his works are true and his ways just. Notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, you know I didn't deserve it. It wasn't fair. He goes, what God did was fair and just and right. All his works are true and all his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's great sin was one of the sins that God hates. Pride. I did it for me, for my majesty and my glory. And unfortunately, there are still a lot of believers who try to do the very same thing. They try to build their church or their ministry so that people might say, isn't it wonderful that so-and-so does such great things? As opposed to saying, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done what you told me to do. It is not my kingdom that I build, but yours. And the kingdom that I build is because you gave me the talent and the ability and the Holy Spirit to do so. I am unprofitable. I am not great awesome. In the church... It's always been kind of like that parable that Jesus taught about two men praying. There was a Pharisee who said, how wonderful I am. I, I tithe, I give, I do these things. And I thank you that I am not like that man, the sinner. I am prideful that I am better than him. I have haughty eyes. But what was it that the sinner said? God, forgive me, the sinner. He was humble. He didn't seem to self-justify himself. He didn't say, I'm not as good or I'm as better than that guy. No, I acknowledge I am the sinner. And I need forgiveness. So no wonder it is that God hates pride. Because in pride we try to get ourselves rewarded. In pride we seek to justify ourselves rather than to acknowledge who God is and how awesome that He is. And as it's the Word said, it is better 
be humble around people who are humble than to divide a victory spoil with those who are prideful. James tells us kind of the same thing in James chapter 4, verse 6. It says this, But He gives us a greater grace. You see, in this life, while we live in this foreign land, we're going to come up with opposition and turmoil and, and testing and persecution and just life not being fair. And all of that, God gives us greater grace. When you look and say, I don't know how I could handle that. It's because God didn't give it to you to handle. God gave grace to those who are handling it. He gives grace that is greater than the need. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We hear so many times, life isn't fair or that isn't fair. You can hear it from the sports field to life in general. So-and-so got a promotion. I deserved it. It isn't fair. God gives grace to the humble. You need a little grace? Be a little humble. You need a lot of grace? Be a lot humble. And don't be proud of your humility. And so... All too often, when we think of sin, we think of all the gross things or the things that we did that we just can't forgive ourselves of or the things that other people do that we're so glad that we don't do. I doubt the thing that you brought to mind about your sin was listed. But even in the sin that God hates, pride, And he brought judgment to Nebuchadnezzar. He also, when Nebuchadnezzar repented, brought restoration. So if there is a sin you think that God can't forgive, he even forgives the sins he hates. Let alone the sins that you and I have committed. We serve and worship an awesome God who simply says, be dependent on me, which is really hard for we Americans as we strive so much to be independent and we teach our children to be independent. And true, we ought to teach our children to be independent of us, but we should never teach our children to be independent of God. To be humble. And to be that truly. And I know you're tempted to say, well, Pastor, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. 
He was in control of an entire kingdom. His word was law. And God humbled him. I'd hate to see us walking around as animals. Much rather see us standing and praising him, saying, God, give me grace. Because I'm simply your humble servant, not worthy to be called and used, but you do so. And I am humbled by your calling. And all God's people said,